This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On a dark highway outside of Houston, just after midnight on Independence Day 1987, a police officer notices a white Toyota that seems to be lost and weaving. Suspecting a drunk driver, he flips on his overhead lights and sirens and pulls them over. He gets out of his car with a flashlight in hand. But he'd need more than that. They had kidnapped the guy, and he was in the trunk of the car. The guy started banging on the trunk. That's retired Houston police officer Jaime Escalante. And according to him, the guy in the trunk wasn't their only contraband. The three men in the white Toyota were also in possession of $750,000 worth of cocaine. They weren't about to go down at a traffic stop. As the officer gets out of his car, one of the men gets out of the Toyota and begins talking to him. Suddenly, another door on the Toyota flies open and one of the other men gets out and begins firing at the officer. After opening fire, the men jump back in the car and drive away from where the officer fell to the pavement. In the rearview mirror, the beam of his flashlight is the only indication that something's wrong. I'm Cristel Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. Jaime Escalante was born to be a police officer, and he found his calling as soon as he entered the academy in 1981. He had a couple of near brushes with death in a car accident and a shooting. They left him with the so-called Superman complex. It's something that affects so many officers, where they imagine themselves to be invincible. Jaime paid attention to everything. He'd noticed immediately in the mid-1980s when Spanish-speaking immigrants began arriving in Houston from Colombia and started dealing drugs on the corners of the Fifth Ward. He'd gotten to know them. He'd spoken to a lot of them over the years. He'd even watched some of them ascend the cartel hierarchies. They were a vindictive, jealous type. But as they got to know Jaime Escalante, they began to trust him. They regularly fed him tips. And sure, they were criminals. But when they were killed, they left behind families, too. Families who wanted answers. I remember somebody saying, well, it's just to, you know, eliminate another drug dealer. Like, who cares, Escalante? 
But I never looked at it like that. I was, I was like, even though, yeah, they destroy a lot of families and stuff, but still, the only God can take your life away, man. In 1985, Jaime Escalante watched the murders among the Colombians rack up, with no consequences and little to no investigation from homicide detectives. The Colombians loved to talk, so Jaime knew who'd been responsible for the deaths, but no one cared. Finally, he got so fed up that he talked to a homicide lieutenant about it. I'm like, man, these guys are out of control over here on the corners and nobody does anything, you know. Or they weren't targeting because they weren't really concerned. They had other issues in the police department. And, and I'm thinking, hey, this is the, the poor neighborhoods that it's affecting. Fine, the lieutenant said. If he knew who was responsible for the murders, he could solve them himself. Jaime was assigned to the Chicano squad and given a challenge. Six weeks to clear the handful of murders his informants had ID'd. So he goes, you're going to be up there on a special assignment. Jaime was skeptical, but he followed orders. Then he arrived on his first day. When I went to 61 Reasoner, we had like eight guys inside a little hall. And there was a window and that cheap ass glass that when it was hot, the heat, when it was cold, the cold, and you were like sitting next to each other. And I'm like, damn, so where am I gonna sit? The weight of his challenge started to sink in when Jaime saw how poorly resourced the Chicano squad actually was. Most of the homicide detectives and Chicano squad officers had shuffled narcotics-related homicides to the bottom of the pile. But one officer, squad member John Castillo, had paid attention. He was working on two of the murders already, so he and Jaime Escalante worked together. The homicide division cleared them out a closet, and they moved in. It was a tight squeeze, but Jaime knew his place in the squad's hierarchy. I was the last guy coming in, and I'm like, man, this is bullshit. But it, it is what it is, so I hooked up with Castillo. And uh, Castillo was old school, too, very good detective and a good interrogator. The tryout couldn't have gone better. Most of the guys that I interviewed, I would learn everything about them. Uh, from other Colombians, from other sources. I would talk to their mom and, hey, no lo ha visto aquel, como, you know, how's he doing? And the mom would say, like, since he was little, he did this and he hung around with the bad people and he likes the Buchanan whiskey. And, and uh, you know, I learned everything about him. In the end, Jaime cleared more than the initial four murders he'd been assigned. The murders that Jaime solved during that trial run came as a relief after a particularly bloody summer. The lieutenant asked Jaime Escalante if he wanted to stay on the Chicano squad or try for narcotics, like he said he'd always wanted to do. Jaime took the opportunity in front of him. He was given a permanent position on the Chicano squad. We must be intolerant of drug use and drug sellers. In the last few years, We've made much progress on the enforcement end. Organized crime is being hit and hit hard with more ferocity than ever before. That clip you just heard was Ronald Reagan, the man most people consider responsible for what would become the drug wars. Back in Houston, Jaime was fighting his own war against homicides that the drug wars were bringing to his city. Jaime Escalante had built up a system for getting the Colombian cartel members to talk to him. And it all relied on one thing cash. 
He taught his sources how to be informants, to feed information confidentially to law enforcement, who in turn would pay for information that led to a bust. I would tell him, hey, a lot of times you get 5%, 20% of any money that's seized, or if you seize a cocaine, they'll give you up to $5,000 a kilo, the feds. They go, really? And they go, yeah. Confidential informants, or CIs, were essentially on the payroll of the Houston Police Department and other local and federal agencies, too. Hyman knew how dangerous it was to be a CI, and he made sure to keep his informants safe. Jaime Escalante's list of CIs grew longer than anyone else's. At one time, I had like 30 informants registered, and they investigated me for that, for having too many informants. He made copies of all of his cases, often taking files home with him to review and look for things he'd missed earlier. Jaime kept excellent notes. He detailed conversations with his dozens of CIs so that he could keep tabs on the spiderweb of cartel players who constantly used different names and changed residences and stash houses. He was so well-known that the Colombians had a nickname for him. El Chicano, llámele al Chicano, él ayuda, he'll help you. El Chicano. I gotta tell you, there's something ironic about being given an endearing nickname by ruthless killers and drug dealers. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of dying and I'll confront anything. Escalante was cocky, careless when it came to rules and procedures, and often spoke back to supervisors, earning him another distinction. One of the most complained about officers in HPD history, with most of the complaints coming from his fellow officers. All these guys, like all the supervisors that always try to control you, I'm like, dude, you ain't never going to control me. I told you, Superman complex. There was this enforcer named Palomino. He would kill anybody or steal dope from anybody or money. Whoever you want killed Palomino would do it. Jaime and Palomino had a kind of mutual respect for each other. So Palomino calls me. He goes, hey, they just flew this guy in from Colombia. They told him to come to Houston and kill me because they were losing a lot of dope. And he says he's tracking you down. He wants to kill you. It was a wild moment. Here you have a hitman telling Jaime that another hitman was on his way from Colombia to kill him. Palomino told Jaime not to worry, though. He had a plan. He goes, but don't worry about it. I'm going to kill him. And I said, no. I said, you can't kill him, Palomino. What's wrong with you? I said, no, you, you tell me where he's at. And he goes, uh, he's, at, he's at this hotel down here. Jaime went to the hotel himself without any backup. When the hitman opened the door, Jaime asked the man if he knew El Chicano. And he kind of looks at me and he goes, Por qué? Why? And I go, because they told me you were looking for him. I'm Escalante, I'm El Chicano. You know, I'm here. What do you need to talk to me about? The combination of fearlessness, outspokenness, and expertise also made Jaime a media darling. In 1987, he told the Houston Chronicle that he'd first noticed the Colombians in Houston's Fifth Ward about five years before. In that time, he'd come to understand quite a bit about the mystical, murderous men and women from Colombia and El Salvador who'd come to rule the drug world. Among the most powerful cartels were Medellin, which at one point was grossing $4 billion a year, and Cali, both named after their hometowns in Colombia. 
David Lemoyne was an FBI agent who worked with Jaime for years battling the cartels. Most of the Colombians I knew were from Cali, and the black Colombians were from a, a port city called Buenaventura. Buenaventura, which means good fortune, is Colombia's main port on the Pacific Ocean. It was a vital stop on the Atlantic slave trade, which brought thousands of Africans into the country until slavery was abolished there in 1851. Over the centuries, the ethnically African Colombians had held onto elements of their native cultures and religions, which became mixed with the traditions and beliefs of Catholicism. Out of this blending was born a couple of religions that believed in magic. One of these was Santeria, in which the practice of magic was predominantly used for benevolent purposes. Another was Palo Mayombe. It originated in the African Congo and relied heavily on belief in the spiritual forces of the dead. Both religions were practiced in Colombia and later Houston. They featured seven gods, which bore similarities to Christian saints and similar symbols. But Palo Mayombe rituals were darker. Some rituals centered around a cauldron that was filled with a human skull, sticks, herbs, feathers, animal bones, sacred stones, and other significant items, and offered human blood, gunpowder, and other materials to inflict harm on others. The cartel members from Buenaventura were a paranoid and superstitious bunch. The first time a medical examiner noted bite marks on a victim's tongue, Jaime Escalante was baffled. The marks appeared to be human, officials noted. Who on earth would bite a dead person's tongue? Jaime's list of confidential informants, along with his own personal research, helped him begin to understand the cultural differences of this group of South Americans. After one double homicide in Harris County, that's outside of Houston city limits, informants described the Colombian cartels becoming even more macabre and mystical. They did a ritual so the spirits wouldn't come back and uh, haunt them. One of them was biting their tongue, and the other was going back and forth after the body, chanting something. According to Jaime's informant, the bite marks and movement, jumping backwards and forwards over the victim's body, had been part of a santeria ritual. I had some good informants that were santeros. Santeros were priests in the santeria religion. They told him how they would protect the cartel members' activities. They would uh, ward off the police and uh, bless the cocaine so the police wouldn't arrest them and, you know, sacrifice animals, depending for which god it was. As Jaime dove deeper into the world of cartels, he came to understand them better than anyone else at the Houston Police Department. No murder was typical or predictable, but the ones involving cartels were shrouded in even more secrecy and mystique. They weren't just criminal organizations. They were living organisms. And understanding how they operated was going to be crucial to solving the murders they were increasingly being linked to. Once this crack cocaine came out, the demand multiplied probably a hundredfold, if not more. Another sharp decline in oil prices in 1986 had pushed Houston into a recession. One in eight Houstonians lost their job, and some 20% of Houston's office space sat vacant. So did more than 200,000 homes, while plenty of other buildings in progress 
stood as amputated skeletons reminding neighbors of the growth that once was. Depressed, out-of-work Houstonians began turning to crack and cocaine for an escape. Most of those guys were working people, you know, just had their jobs and they would stop by there and buy a gram or something and snort it with their girlfriends or whatever. And, and then, you know, they got addicted to it and they'd be losing their jobs and wives and everything else would collapse. As the drug trade became even more lucrative, the violence and competition increased. At upwards of $30,000 per kilogram, the high prices meant that the Colombians in town who slung cocaine were big spenders. They traded their revolvers and shotguns for higher-powered Uzis and automatics. And they constantly kept up with the latest technology, becoming early adopters of products and then shedding them as new upgrades came along, including pagers, facsimiles, computers, and cell phones. Adrian Garcia, a Harris County commissioner who was in the Houston Police Department at the time, recalls the cartels causing fear among officers. At the height of the drug wars, we were finding situations where people had access to our police radios, people had access to license plates of every undercover vehicle. We were finding our names being checked on police records. While the officers on the Chicano squad were still tethered to their desks and using landlines and pagers, the cartels were spending their money on fax machines and cell phones. They even worked out arrangements with people in the neighborhoods, particularly little old ladies, Chicano squad officer Cecil Mosqueda recalled. And they tell her, we're going to pay you X amount of money, but we can use your phone. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's extra money. All you want to do is just use the phone. They were doing their drug deals on the phone. That's the way it was. They threw around plenty of cash, and there were lots of deals to be made, but the competition was fierce. The Colombian cartels fought constantly over turf, customers, product, and money. But they were an insular group and hard to penetrate. They were real tight-knit community, the Colombians. I mean, they'd kill your ass if you were a snitch. There was plenty of cash moving around and high-stakes cargo, so dealers would maintain four or five different apartments where they'd meet with buyers and sleep in hotels. They'd use nicknames and aliases and excelled at creating very convincing, high-quality fake IDs. It was all extremely frustrating. Because they would rent cars all day long, and they, they'd have, like, an American person rent the car, they'd give you 500 bucks. But the car would never be returned. So when a witness to a crime would give police the rented car's license plate and police would look up the registration. Yeah, I loaned that car to some guy from Puerto Rico officer. He gave me 500 bucks and he hasn't brought it back. So that trail always was dead. To keep everyone straight, Jaime Escalante carried around photographs of the Colombians he'd come in contact with over the years. Often, if he saw a Colombian he knew, he'd ask them to take a look at the photos and give him any names they could. All the names were, were bad, you know. I remember one time I asked this, man, that's a cool name. Uh, that's your name? And he started laughing. He goes, man, that's a movie star in uh, Bolivia or something. I said, really, dude? And he goes, yeah, nobody gives a right name here. Eventually, the Chicano squad had so many pictures that they filled several binders. 
Jaime was building his own database of cartels whose members were ever-changing. Among the photographs of individuals in his collection were people known as enforcers, some of the most deadly actors in the book of brutal criminals. They were brash, freelance shooters who didn't seem to care who may have seen them pull the trigger or speed away in their flashy cars. They dumped bodies along deserted roads or left them locked in trunks of cars, in scenes littered with symbols of superstition, like animal carcasses and trinkets. There were enforcers that were ripping people off. Rivera, Muelita, uh, Valencia. Valencia used to hang around with all those guys, and he was in it for, let's go make some money. Two of those names, Rivera and Valencia, along with a slew of nicknames that accompanied each one, kept coming up in conversations with informants over and over again. One thing Jaime heard was particularly worrisome. They wouldn't hesitate or say they were going to kill a police officer because in Colombia, that's what you do. So I knew they were capable of doing it. It's just, they, you know, it just hadn't happened yet. In 1987, John Castillo and Jaime Escalante had a dozen cases on their plates. All right. As a true crime fan, I have to say, this next part is fascinating. I'm about to list a bunch of crimes that show you the increasing level of violence. Now, my intention is not to be salacious. I just feel it's necessary to paint an accurate picture of the time and to show what the Chicano squad was up against. In February, the bodies of two Colombians turned up inside of a 1986 white Ford Thunderbird parked on a dead-end street. In the back seat was a man whose hands and feet had been bound behind him. He'd been stabbed and shot, then rolled up in a multicolored quilt and covered in a garbage bag. Another man was in the trunk, similarly tied and covered with two gunshot wounds. In April, Jaime Escalante was assigned to investigate the death of a 19-year-old who left a bloody trail through a parking lot where he was shot while running from Colombians with guns. In late May, a big-time drug dealer who informants told Jaime had been responsible for dozens of murders was killed in a botched robbery. Then, in June, a woman went to visit a pregnant friend who'd been doing the laundry in the bathroom. She found the woman's child peacefully sleeping in the bedroom, but then, to her horror, found her friend dead, draped over the edge of the bathtub. The woman's husband had been killed, too. Jaime Escalante was reached at home at 3 a.m. to come in and investigate the double murder. The woman had been shot in the head and her husband was lying next to her. His head was covered in a white flowered sheet riddled with bullet holes. There was an open pair of handcuffs on his right wrist. Right before Jaime Escalante and his partner, John Castillos's eyes, the cartels, and the enforcers they contracted were becoming more brazen and deadly. David Lemoyne again. The most common way to get whacked was if you didn't pay for dope. It, it happened if they thought you were an informant, but those were the two ways. And usually, you know, if you didn't pay for the dope, obviously it's because you're a drug dealer. If you testified against somebody, obviously you were a drug dealer. You know, so there wasn't a lot of sympathy. In late June of 1987... Jaime Escalante got a phone call that would change everything. It was from a woman who said that her 16-year-old daughter wanted to talk to him. The mother called and she was, hey, Mamu has some information on a couple of homicides. 
and she had a ton of intel. Mamu's real name was Samira Jeanette Ham. The teenager was a native Houstonian who'd been helping out the Colombians with odds and ends. One thing led to another, and Samira, a.k.a. Mamu, started dating one of the dealers, giving her a front-row view of their violent operations. She did not look like a kid, and uh, I think that's where her mom was concerned. After she witnessed several murders, Mamu was fearful of this fast-paced criminal lifestyle and wanted out. The narcotics life had already changed her physically. Once, she refused to do something a boyfriend asked her to do, and he shot her in the leg. Mamu walked with a limp after that. I mean, she's lucky she didn't get killed by any of these guys. Mamu had been dating a man named Gio Rivera. But while he was locked up for drugs, Jaime says, she started messing around with one of Gio's associates. When Gio was released, he called Mamu. He said he wanted her to buy him a plane ticket to Colombia and would give her $2,000 for it. He asked her to meet him. If, if you were dating Gio Rivera and you started messing with somebody else, the other person was going to die and she was probably going to die. Mamu saw through the ruse. She realized her life was on the line. Jaime Escalante was always extremely careful about his informants. Their value, in the end, was in keeping them alive. That's how he had come to accumulate so many. Plus, he felt a special bond to Mamu, who was so young, but had seen so much. She was, I think, a little bit like me. She was at the tip of the arrowhead. She was ready to tell Jaime everything she knew. Uh, this is Officer Escalante, and I'm about to record a conversation with uh, Samara Ham to try to convince uh, Samara Ham to uh, talk. Mahmoud did talk. She had seen a lot. And a lot of it involved her ex-boyfriend, Gio Rivera. As Mahmoud talked, Jaime realized Gio Rivera was responsible for several of the murders he was trying to solve. I mean, she knew things that you only knew if you were there type of stuff. The information, along with other evidence and statements Jaime had obtained already, were enough for him to get a warrant for Luis Gio Rivera's arrest for murder. The search was on for Gio, but for one man, that search would come too late. And this time, the victim would be one of their own. More after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Colombian cartels in Houston were a close-knit, albeit violent and grudge-filled, community. They enjoyed flashing their expensive jewelry and clothes at Houston's nightclubs. One evening, three Colombians headed out for a night of partying and ended up at the Caribana, a nightclub popular among those in the Colombian cocaine trade. For hours, the three men drank piña coladas with a couple of friends and danced with pretty girls who were impressed by their style and expensive taste. Then, 
They robbed a rival drug dealer, stuffed him into the trunk of a car, and headed out of town in a white rental. In a drunken stupor, the men drove around aimlessly. As the Houston skyline faded farther into the distance and the city lights began to dim, it became clear they were far in the country, somewhere. One of the passengers had passed out, lulled to sleep on the traffic-free highway, and then he awoke to flashing lights. It was 3.30 a.m. on July 4th, Independence Day, 1987. Sergeant Ronald Slockett had been patrolling Highway 90A in Sugarland, about 20 miles southwest of Houston, when he saw a new white Toyota whose driver appeared to be drunk. He flicked on his emergency lights and siren to make a traffic stop. It took a few minutes for the driver of the car to pull over. When they finally did, Ronald Slockett radioed to the dispatcher that he was out on a traffic stop and gave the car's plate number, but no reason for the stop. He grabbed his flashlight, which would be needed to conduct a field sobriety test on a dark country road, but not his ticket book, an indication to detectives later that the stop was for a DWI. As you already know, Slockett didn't get very far. Within moments of him approaching the vehicle, one of the men got out of the Toyota and began shooting. Reports vary as to whether one or two of them shot Slockett, but in the end, Ronald Slockett was struck four times in the torso, which had not been covered by a bulletproof vest, once in his right leg, once in his left leg, and once in the buttock. Slockett fell to the pavement. The men got back into the rented white Toyota and it made a U-turn, the headlights flashing over Slockett's lifeless body as they headed back towards Houston. The Sugarland Police Department pays respect each year and remembers all of these officers as well as one of our own. Sugarland Police Sergeant Ronald D. Slockett, taken from us on July 4th, 1987. Even today, Ronald Slockett is the only Sugarland officer to die while on duty. The year he was shot, there were 73 other police officers killed by gunfire in the U.S. News of the death spread quickly, and within hours, the scene was swarming with uniforms. Even though Sugarland had a small police department and Houston's was much larger and well-resourced, Sugarland wanted to investigate Slockett's death on their own. Ronald Slockett had been with the department for 10 years and left behind a family. Crime scene investigators scoured the area, but there was very little evidence. And there was only one witness who'd seen Sergeant Slockett pull the white car over, but then the witness continued driving and didn't see the shooting. All they had was the license plate number for the white car, which Slockett had given to a dispatcher. As investigators got everything they could from the scene, homicide officers who worked the Houston Police Department's day shift began to arrive. And Sugarland Police had sent the white car's license plate far and wide. The car was a rental and signed out by a man in Houston who worked for a rental car company. They started looking at the guy that rented the car had gone to Louisiana. He told police that he'd rented the car for a friend of a friend, a man named Ike who'd paid him $200. The Sugarland officers weren't sure if his alibi was legit, but something about it rang true for Jaime. They're still saying, see what kind of weapons he has at his house. And finally, 
I go, dude, I'm telling you, it's going to be Colombians. Within days of Slockett's death, Jaime's pager had been abuzz with tips about what went down that night. Like a week later, started getting information. Hey, there's rumors that, uh, you know, some Colombians killed some police officer. But as sometimes is the case with high-profile murders, egos got in the way of the investigation. Sugarland officials wanted the case to be solved and wanted to pin it on the man who'd rented the car. But Jaime had one very important source that no one else had access to. Samira Ham, a.k.a. Mamu. I said, dude, you need to talk to Samira. She knows those guys, and, and she's got a lot of intel. Nobody took him up on his offer. As the search dragged on, the Sugarland police, despite their initial stubbornness, eventually had to admit that the man who'd rented the Toyota was not the man who'd killed Officer Slockett. They were finally ready to admit that the Colombians were involved, but still kept Jaime Escalante out of the investigation. Okay, you've been here longer than I have, and, you know, work your leads out. But they waited too long. When it comes to the complicated, interconnected kinds of murders that the Colombian cartels were infamous for, they often make sense in retrospect. Each crime was a retaliation for another crime, like a domino effect where each murder and robbery committed was in response to other murders and robberies in the past. But when you're in it, it's a maze of names, hazy connections and rumors. As the summer of 1987 played out, with Ronald Slockett's murder still unsolved, officers in Houston scrambled to try to connect the dots and keep up with the ever-changing list of nicknames and aliases in use. Eventually, the dozens of people Jaime and other detectives interviewed tracked down the man who'd paid someone $200 to rent the white Toyota. They were getting closer. On July 9th, a confidential informant called to say that one of the composite sketches being circulated by police looked a lot like a guy named Jones Valencia. Police had taken fingerprints from inside the white Toyota rental car, but hadn't had a name to compare them to until now. They looked in the fingerprint system and found someone named Hector Valencia. The prints matched, but belonged to someone who may as well have been a ghost. His name kept coming up associated with violent crime scenes and drug deals, but Jaime Escalante hadn't met him yet. Homicide detectives requested 120 copies of Hector Valencia's mugshot and delivered them throughout town, showing them to witnesses at apartment complexes, people shopping at the supermarket, and inmates at the Harris County Jail. And then came the moment where Jaime's most valuable asset proved decisive. A few nights after Officer Slockett had been killed, Mamu called Jaime with fresh intel. A man nicknamed Chamo was going to be meeting a few friends at a small strip shopping center. Word on the street had Chamo on the scene the night Slockett was killed. Off Mamu's tip, Jaime suited up with several other officers and waited. For two and a half hours, Jaime and others watched the front door from a parking lot at El Palmar restaurant across the street. Finally, just before 10 p.m., the men emerged. Jaime and his crew pounced. The three men took off running but were caught by the officers. Chamo was arrested. And one of the other men arrested that night was none other than... Gio Rivera. Mamu's much-feared ex-boyfriend. 
Jaime pulled Gio Rivera out of the cell the next day to interrogate him. His name had been uttered in connection with several murders, and he'd been charged with at least one. It didn't take much. Rivera detailed several murders that he'd witnessed or partaken in. Much to Jaime's frustration, Ronald Slockett wasn't one of them. Rivera was staying silent on that. But then Jaime caught a break. Yeah, this is Investigator Escalante with HPD Homicide under HPD number 10668895. Uh, this interview will be conducted in Spanish. Someone else was talking. Someone who wasn't in the Toyota that night, but knew who was. He told Jaime the man in the car was named Valencia. A different first name, but Valencia was the same. Jaime turned his attention to finding Valencia before it was too late. Undercover officers case location where drug-dealing Colombians were known to hang out. Bars like the Rhinestone Wrangler in Caribana and J.C. Penney's department store in Sharpstown Mall. Wait, a J.C. Penney's? Like a J.C. Penney's? Man, these guys are hard to predict. Three days later came a new valuable tip. Jones Valencia was staying in a unit at the Park Trail Apartments. Houston police even got the apartment number, and a maintenance man let them in, but said he'd never seen anyone come in or out. Inside, officers cleared the apartment without finding or hearing anyone. They saw clothes strewn on the floor of the apartment, but no furniture other than a couple of chase lounges in the living room. The maintenance man promised to call if he saw anyone in the apartment. A couple of hours later, he made good on his promise. There was a man in white shorts sitting on the balcony of the apartment, sunning himself. Houston police moved in immediately. It was Jones Valencia, all right. They could tell from the view through binoculars. But had he seen police? Houston police officers had been watching the apartment, but hadn't looped in the Chicano squad, figuring they'd handle the arrests by themselves. As officers watched, Jones Valencia moved quickly, dressed, and left the apartment headed for the parking lot. There, he nearly collided with another Colombian man. The police are here, Jones Valencia yelled, and they all took off running into the woods. The cops followed. These guys were like, you know, 40, 50 years old, you know, 260 pounds, old guys. And I'm thinking, why didn't you call us? They would get pissed off. You know, you, you know you're an officer. We don't have to tell you shit about this case. Police set up a perimeter and searched the wooded area for the suspects. They got help from a helicopter with a powerful spotlight, courtesy of U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. But the foliage was too dense for the helicopter to be much help. A mounted patrol and bloodhounds were called in and shortly before sunrise, the dogs caught the trail of Hugo Caicedo, one of the men who had been in the Toyota with Jones Valencia that night. But Jones Valencia had gotten away. Jaime Escalante was livid. Why don't you guys notify me? I'm, I'm the case agent on that case. I don't have to tell you shit. I'm like, really, dude? And I go, this, this guy took off running. You guys think you can chase that guy down? We got on each other's face, and Lieutenant Gavino goes, that's it, let's get out of here. Escalante, step outside. Jaime was frustrated, but the work didn't slow down. Tip after tip came in. Some of the information was, uh, was two days old. 
they sent SWAT in and everything. And, uh, you know, I'm like, he's not there anymore. The game of cat and mouse continued through the summer. On September 1st, a Crime Stoppers tipster called for El Chicano, a.k.a. Jaime Escalante. And that tip led police to Jones Valencia's girlfriend. It was the dead of night and everyone was exhausted from searching all day. But Jaime Escalante knew he had a ticking clock to find Jones Valencia before he committed another murder or disappeared across the border. He tried to interview the girlfriend, but she resisted. She was in fear of retaliation, she told Escalante. Patiently, as he had done with witnesses and informants so many times before, he worked with Valencia's girlfriend to put her fears at ease. Finally, at close to 3 a.m., she flipped. She led police to the Chateau Concord apartments where she had just dropped Jones off hours earlier. In the dark, 30 Houston police officers set up a perimeter. Around 5.30 a.m., they tried to speak with Jones Valencia via throw phone, but he refused. His neighbors were all evacuated. We know you're in there, they said to Valencia over the loudspeaker. Come out with your hands up. At 10.30 a.m. on September 2nd, they'd had enough. SWAT fired several rounds of tear gas into the apartment, smoking Jones Valencia out. He emerged with his hands up, pleading for clothes, wearing only a black swimsuit. One newspaper joked that even though Valencia had dusted himself in some kind of magical voodoo powder to ward off the evil spirits, it was no match for the Chicano squad. Hey, Chicano, I didn't kill the police officer, Jones Valencia yelled at Jaime Escalante, using the nickname Jaime had earned on the streets. It caught Jaime by surprise. He wants to talk to who? (laughs) Once I put Valencia in there, Mr. Nice Guy, you know. Later that afternoon, Jones Valencia sat with Jaime and Chicano squad sergeant Bobby Gatewood in the interview room for three hours. His name was actually Julio Cesar Murillo, he said, and he was 19 years old, not 23 or 26 as he was believed to be. Killing a police officer was a capital offense subject to the death penalty in Texas. If Valencia had any hope now, it meant cooperating. And he's like, okay, I'll tell you what happened. They'd all been drinking that night, he said, and had gotten lost driving around in the country. They had kidnapped the guy. And he was in the trunk of the car. When Slack had stopped him, the guy started banging on the trunk. So that's when Rivera shot him. He's, he's like, you know, we had to protect ourselves. Like, really, dude? As news of Jones Valencia's arrest and the image of him being carted away in his swimsuit spread through town, police were riding high. But the interagency bickering that Jaime Escalante had witnessed made him skeptical that justice would be served. You get some mix of feelings because you're interviewing him, but a lot of that stuff is out of your control. Sugarland had held on to their case and continued to build it with evidence and interviews. In April of 1988, Fort Bend County prosecutors charged Valencia, Gio Rivera, and Hugo Caicedo with capital murder. But the charges didn't stick. A jury acquitted Gio Rivera, and charges against the other two men were dropped. To this day, Jaime Escalante believes if Sugarland police had listened to him in the beginning, he could have gotten convictions. If the men had been apprehended sooner, and if he had been able to get confessions out of them, 
it all would have been different in his eyes. They never took an initiative. Mamu had a lot of information on it, and the district attorney never met with her or me. They were like, oh, we can solve it, you know, but, but these guys. Uh... And I knew, I said, man. It was a consolation prize that while the men weren't convicted of Ronald Slockett's murder, Jaime's work did put them behind bars for a slew of other murders they'd committed. Jones Valencia's photo was plastered all over the news. And alongside it was almost always the team photo of the Chicano squad. Yet even the squad knew that the calm wouldn't last for long. The cartels were like medusas, and cutting off one head didn't have much of an effect at all. Even though it took the law enforcement officers an insurmountable effort, their sting? Wasn't a blip on the radar screen. I mean, we were a minor inconvenience. Former FBI agent David Lemoyne again. And it's because it was so difficult to work it. And if you go by the rules, you know, it's, it's uh, you're so highly restricted. To the cartels, people were dispensable. But not to the Chicano squad, which was about to catch a case that few who worked it would ever forget. On October 3rd, 1987, fresh off of a summer chasing violent drug dealers through town, the Chicano squad would be asked to protect one of Houston's youngest, most innocent victims. A 14-month-old baby girl was missing. Next time on Chicano Squad. The fate of a kidnapped baby girl lies in the hands of the Chicano Squad. Will the trust and goodwill they've built help them to save her? As the clock is ticking, a second child goes missing on the other side of Texas. And these two cases could not have had more different outcomes. En esta ciudad, hay necesidad, caught in the in-between, and swimming upstream. Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our show is produced by Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Associate producers for this episode are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Betubiza. Our show was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nashat Kurwa and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design from Brandon McFarland. Our theme music was composed by the amazing Brownout. Fact-checking by Charlotte Silver. Special thanks to the Sugarland Police Department. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nashat Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristela Alonso. If you like this episode and if you think the story is important, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell everyone. Find out more at FrequencyMachine.com slash Chicano Squad. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. I'll see you in Episode 7. Episode 7.